Hi there. This is Jeremy Clyde of Chad and Jeremy, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Garrett Mankovich, the renowned English rock and roll photographer. Over a 50-plus year career, he has photographed the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Elton John, Traffic, the Yardbirds, Chad and Jeremy, and many, many more. In particular, he shot the cover photos for a number of iconic Rolling Stones albums, including Out of Our Heads, which was known in the U.S. as December's Children, Between the Buttons, Got Live If You Want It, and Big Hits, High Tide, and Green Grass. These were some of the greatest albums ever and definitely some of the coolest covers ever. He has released many photo books and compilations, and he's won a whole bunch of awards. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow. And in this instance, I have chosen as my featured song my reimagined version of Jimi Hendrix's Fire, which was recorded live at a festival in Serbia by my band Project Grand Slam and released on our album Greetings from Serbia. I chose this song, of course, because of Garrett's work with Jimi Hendrix. So, Garrett Megovich, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Well, thank you. What a great introduction. I'm so pleased to be chatting to you. It's lovely. All right. So I know you got maybe your first big break in the music business because you met these two guys named Chad and Jeremy, and you shot the cover for Yesterday's Gone. That was in 1963, I believe. Am I right? I think you are. Yeah, absolutely. Spot on. 63. Yeah, I started, uh, I guess I started just at the end of 62, and I served an apprenticeship before then. But yes, Chad and Jeremy were really the, the, the most important stepping stone for me because not only was Yesterday's Gone a great album to have done the cover for and, and, and everything that was associated with that, but in England, they signed with a record company called Ember Records and Ember Records gave me a lot of other work to do. And, and I, it was consolidated my position and my wish and my dream, if you like, to, to make record covers. And so Chad and Jeremy were instrumental in that. Oh, it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, you, you sound like you're focused on album covers. And, you know, up until the rock era, album covers were really not much of anything. I can't think of a single album cover other than Herb Alpert had whipped cream and other delights, but that was still part of the rock era. And if you were a teenage kid, when that album came out, that cover sold a million albums. 
Okay. Yeah. I um, remember it, yeah. For anybody that doesn't remember it, go look that one up. But seriously, before the rock era, I, I don't think album covers made the same kind of impact that you guys made, you know, in that era and beyond. Well, I think that's probably true. I, I, I guess that it was partly because record covers hadn't really been treated properly. They, they'd never, that they made me want to get involved in them. I mean, as a photographer, I wanted to be in showbiz. It was always important for me to be part of show business. And initially I thought I was going to be a theatrical photographer, photographing theatrical productions, actors, um, that sort of thing. And it was really through Chad and Jeremy that, that changed that. I suddenly realized that music was very much part of show business and was filled with extraordinary young talent who were beginning to be taken seriously. And photographers, designers, hairdressers, all sorts of professions were being taken seriously in a new way. And I think I wanted to try and make record covers and music the core of my career, which is what I did. Well, from what I understand, you had a chance meeting with Marianne Faithful, who then introduced you to Andrew Lug Oldham, always loved that name, who was the manager of this new band called the Rolling Stones. And as they say, the rest from there is history. Tell us about that transition. Well, I met Marianne through Jeremy. I mean, Je Marianne was doing a television show. Chad and Jeremy were on the same show. According to Jeremy, Little Eva was also uh, on that show, The Locomotion. Locomotion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they brought Marianne home and, and I was meeting Jeremy that evening anyway. And there was Marianne and she was just lovely. And we all got on so fantastically well. And I asked her if I could photograph her and she said yes. And I picked her up the next day, started working with her, started photographing really just as a friend. And um, she was managed, as you say, by Andrew Lou Goldham. And he saw some photographs that I'd done of Marianne and he really liked them. And he asked me to come in and meet the Rolling Stones, which was incredibly exciting. And this was the latter part of 64 now. So they had already had a breakthrough of sorts by that time, hadn't they? They had here, yeah, in, in the UK and a little bit in America, they were beginning to make a noise. They were seen very much, I think, as sort of second in line to the Beatles. The Beatles were the, the big headliners, if you like. The Stones were lower down on the bill, but they were making a, a big splash, nevertheless. And I knew about the Stones because I'd seen them. I'd watched them on TV as a, as a fan, as a music fan, and I loved them. I loved their naughtiness. I loved their lack of respect. I liked them. I thought that they, you know, they were pushing the envelope a bit. And um, yeah, so when I met them, um, they were delightful. They, they weren't remotely moody or prima donna-ish. They were just very charming. And we all got on very well. And honestly, it was it was a very smooth transition into suddenly finding myself working with what were to become such an important band. You know, it's funny because 
a lot of music and the arts in general is all about image. And of course, the Beatles had a certain good boy image and the Stones had that bad boy image. And whether it was warranted or not, that's the way it was. And, you know, you're right. It was the Beatles versus the Stones. The Dave Clark Five were in that discussion for a little while, but they kind of went by the wayside. So it was the Beatles versus the Stones. And, you know, what they did back then in the early Stones, when they had Brian in the band, it was a remarkable set of music that they produced. It was. And of course, Andrew Oldham, Andrew Lou Oldham, was incredibly important and influential in those early days, not only as a producer, as an extraordinary set of ears, but also because of his understanding. He knew that the Stones had to be the antithesis of the Beatles, and he also knew the Stones had to write their own material, that they couldn't do covers or hope that John and Paul would give them a cast off here or there. So, um, you know, that was that was absolutely crucial that he that he got Mick and Keith writing. Yes. All right. So you got invited to go on tour with the Stones. Tell us about that. Well, I got a call in the summer of, of 65 saying, you know, Andrew wants to see you. Would you, you know, would you like to go to America with the band? And of course, <laughs> you know, you've got to understand for, 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 for the British people, uh, for British bands, America was everything. You, you really weren't anything unless you'd made it in America. Uh, America was the place of our dreams. America was the background to nearly all the most important, exciting and interesting movies and television that we saw. We were brought up on a diet of American police thrillers of, you know, I know you're not allowed to say cowboys and Indians anymore, but cowboys and Indians, you know what I mean. And yeah. this was an important part of our lives. So going to America was just absolutely fantastic. And for my first trip to America, flying first class on TWA with the Rolling Stones, <laughs> that was pretty amazing. I can imagine what it was like. Well, they took the States by storm, just like uh, the Beatles did and so many other bands. Tell us any kind of inside stories that you remember from that first tour. Well, I think the, the, the one thing that struck me, once I was over the general excitement of being in New York, because we flew to New York and the first few gigs, we flew out of New York and back again afterwards. Um, so we were playing, I think we did places in Connecticut and, and upstate New York and things like that. And Boston, I think we did um, from New York. I think my first really revelation was how badly organized it all was. Um, how boring so much of it was. The stage shows themselves were immensely exciting. I mean, to be on stage with the Rolling Stones, sometimes twice a night, um, was absolutely wonderful. But often they didn't get beyond 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, their set wasn't more than 35 or 40 anyway. And if they got halfway through, it was a good night because the audience would just be screaming and rushing to the stage and leaping on onto the boys and the security was inadequate and and it was just chaos 
it was fun chaos. I mean, I, I guess being a Rolling Stone and having being mauled by young girls isn't all fun, but it was it was exciting. And when they were playing, the music felt fantastic. And you you know, I I had that feeling of being on stage with a band before, but not often, and nothing remotely like being on stage with the Rolling Stones. So it was incredibly exciting and thrilling, but also mundane and boring and lots and lots of hanging around. I mean, it was Charlie Watts, wasn't it? Who said, you know, whatever, when asked on the 30th anniversary or the 50th anniversary, you know, he said, whatever it was, five years of playing and 35 years of hanging around. And that's what it was, you know. Yeah. It was like, it was badly organized and quite shockingly so, but fun. Well, back then, the whole genre of touring as a rock band was brand new. I remember this story. I've told it once before on the podcast. When the Beatles came to America for the first time, they played the Ed Sullivan show. And then the second gig that they had was in Washington, D.C. They were playing in the round. And if you take a look on YouTube at the videos from that, they didn't have anybody on stage with them. They didn't have, you know, guys to help them move the instruments around. So you actually see Ringo turning his drums, okay, as the stage was turning. So you're talking about a prehistoric era of touring for these rock groups, right? No, that's absolutely right. And in certain places, particularly down south, the promoters, the local promoters, hadn't really ever done a, a rock show before. And they were both skeptical and and cynical and uh you know they were more used to rodeos or putting on wrestling or you know basketball they they weren't geared up at all and in fact one gig uh which really i'll never forget was in the home of a, a famous basketball team and the dressing room that the stones were given was the team's dressing room and all round the wall of the dressing room on hooks was the sweaty clothes, the, the clothes that the team had used, including their jock straps that were just hanging on the hook. It was so uncivilized, you know, to put a band playing a gig in someone else's dressing room with their old clothes around. And I've got some great pictures somewhere of Mick putting on somebody's sweatpants who was obviously six foot 10 or something <laughs> and they you know mix got lost in one leg of these giant sweatpants but it it was yeah that sort of stuff was really extraordinary and hard to imagine you had to be there so much fun Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. It features 10 new songs, plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe. And the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. 
It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it album of the year. Big Celebrity Buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year. And Pop Icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats. How about that? And for me, the icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like Steve Hackett of Genesis, Gary Puckett of The Union Gap, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Jim McCarty of The Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way in five special episodes of this podcast featuring two songs in each one. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast and please sign up for our weekly emails previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. When you let yourself go. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. You shot a guy named Jimi Hendrix, okay? Now, Hendrix, for anybody that doesn't know the story, he played in the United States extensively. He was in different bands. I saw him perform at a club in Greenwich Village called the Cafe Wa where he was just part of the stage band. And the only reason I remember that is because they had this incredible left-handed guitarist. And then Chaz Chandler from The Animals took him back to England. And when he reemerged, he was now Jimi Hendrix. Okay. And of course, I remembered him from that time that I saw him. But tell us your experience with Jimi Hendrix. Well, it, it, it's quite interesting. Um, I knew Chaz Chandler, although I'd never photographed the animals. And I'd, uh, Chaz was beginning to move into management and production. I'd photographed a couple of bands for him. And I got a call from him saying, I've, I've just bought this guitarist over. We're putting on uh, a sort of little showcase gig uh, at a club that we all knew in Soho called The Bag of Nails. He said, I'd like you to come along. I want you to photograph him, come meet him, have a look, see what we're talking about. And, Great, fine, thanks. So I went down to this seedy little club and uh, Jimmy was playing. And I I've said this before, to be honest, initially the music just went over my head. You know, I just, it was loud, it was raucous. I could see that he was impressive and I could see that he was spectacular looking. Uh, because he was so wild, he was so unmolded, uh, he was so natural, and that was exciting to see. But his music didn't do a lot for me initially. Anyway, uh, they stopped playing, and he was mingling, uh, Chaz was mingling with Jimmy, talking to people, introducing him to people. He came and introduced him to me, and Jimmy, you know, shook my hand very gently, delicately almost he called me sir which seemed so ridiculous i know it's part of american culture i understand that but it just seemed absurd you know i mean apart from the fact that i was younger than he was it just seems it anyway he was sweet he was very gentle very kind nice wanted to meet lots of other people and 
I just said, you know, I really look forward to seeing you in my studio. And that was that. And, and that was the first meeting. And then for one reason or another, I didn't actually photograph him until early-ish in 67, when Hey Joe was about to be released or had just been released, wasn't in the charts yet. So he was still untested and hadn't broken through. Well, listen, he was a force of nature. And that gig that you're talking about at the Bag and Nails, I think it was either at that gig or maybe he came back the next night or whatever. That's when, you know, all the glitterati of music came to see him. Paul McCartney was there. Eric Clapton was there. And they all experienced Hendrix for the first time. And I think that they got it for sure. Oh, indeed. Pete Townsend was there. Jeff Beck was there. I always thought Jimmy Page was there, but I asked him and he said, no, I never, I was never there. I was somewhere else at the time. But, but it, yeah, I mean, when I say his music went over my head, I could see that this was a huge talent. I mean, that was inescapable, unavoidable. But it was so different. I understand why you would say that. He blazed a new path. And if you weren't attuned to that path initially, there were plenty of people that weren't, but you know, that was him. No, that was him. And, and I got, you know, I, I grew to like the music very much, uh, of course, but, but, um, but it was clear that he was blowing everybody away. I mean, that was obvious. You could see that and the response and the, uh, so, I mean, I was just out on a limb when I, and, and I'm just saying as a, as a memory that the music went over my head, but clearly he was knocking them dead. I mean, everybody was blown away. And the musicians, of course, the musicians in the audience just didn't know how he was doing it. They, they just couldn't work out how he was doing it. And there were lots of quotes and I don't want to misquote anybody, but there were lots of people saying, you know, I'm going to have to start again. And, you know, this is a completely new way of playing and he's going to change the face of rock and roll and all that stuff was was being said and going on. So, yeah, it was a, it was an extraordinary event. Out of that experience, you have a photo of Hendrix that I think is just extraordinary. It's him in all of his finery. It's a 60s photo. It's got that color. It's got him. It's got his hair. Tell us about that photo, because I think it's just a wonderful photo. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I think the essence of my portraiture is to try and give the subject the opportunity to express themselves and communicate something to the camera. That's what I'm after. I'm after trying to get something from them between them and the camera that will be shared by anybody who views the picture. And I think that's probably what you're picking up on. And, and, and you know, I was very lucky because you're in your subject's hands. You can do everything possible to make, to create the right atmosphere, to make them feel comfortable. And bear in mind that most people don't like having their pictures taken, or at least certainly didn't back in those days. So, you, you know, there was those sort of psychology um, that went into trying to make sure that the subject was comfortable with you and with the camera. That was a big part of it. And Jimmy responded. I mean, I, he gave me everything. He gave me the sort of access to his humanity that, you know, I could never have asked for that. I just, I just tried to create the space for him to give that to me. And he did. 
very generous and 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 uh, wonderfully well you know what you did the same thing with the rolling stones all those album covers that i mentioned before you captured the early stones as they were growing into stars on a worldwide basis and each one of those album covers has become iconic and i mean that seriously okay it, it, they weren't just early album covers. They captured the era. They captured the band. And I want to compliment you on being able to do that because it's not easy. Oh, well, that's kind of you. Thank you. I mean, I think I obviously one, you know, you're never working with history in mind. You know, you're working at the moment. You're working uh, in, in that second, in that fraction of a second that you take the picture. But what I and nobody imagined also that the pictures would have any value. Uh, beyond the next few months. Um, and so none of that was in our consciousness. We were just trying to do the best job that we could and trying to say something with the with the cover image. I mean, every, you know, Andrew uh, was, that was very important to Andrew, the image of the band and how they looked on their covers. Well, that was key to the way they were promoted. So it was very important for me to understand that and to try and capture something about the band that that communicated something to the audience that's what i was trying to do you know back in that day it was all vinyl of course and the albums were big and the covers were important because they told a story you know there were liner notes on all the album covers meaning somebody wrote about the album about the band about the artist and it, it was a very personal kind of experience and it helped the listener get into what it was that they were listening to. Nowadays, you know, CDs almost don't exist anymore, but you can't get very much on a CD. And certainly with streaming, there's none of this any longer. So in a sense, it's an art form that no longer exists in the same way that it used to exist. But it was part of the image of the band or the artist, wasn't it? It was, and it was part of the listening experience. It, it, because... People have forgotten, music's so accessible these days. People have forgotten that you had to save up your money. You had to save your pocket money up to go and buy an album. And, and it was a special thing and you had to choose. You couldn't just go and buy three or four albums. You had to choose one. And, and it was an important deal. It was a big commitment. And then you got home and you unwrapped it and you took it out and you listened to it. And while you listened to it, you sat on the floor and you looked at the cover. And you might read the notes if you could work out what Andrew Lou Goldham had written, but you could, you looked at the cover, you got a sense and a feel of the people who were playing their music for you. And it was a very, it was a, it was a big part of the listening experience. And I think that's why I wanted to be part of that business. And that's why I stayed in that business, you know, for over 50 years. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the rest of your time in the business, because we are focused on the early years. But as you just said, you've been doing this an awful long time. Tell us some of your favorite memories of other artists or other situations that you were involved in as a rock photographer. Oh, gosh. You know, when I think when I start trying to think about all the all the artists I've worked with. So in, and I, I can't do it in chronological order. I think that Immediate Records, which Andrew Lou Goldham formed, uh, I think in 65, was became a, a major home for me, particularly after Andrew 
split with the Stones. And of course, I did at the same time in the sense that I was working with Andrew and the Stones weren't interested in me anymore. And then I started working on a regular basis with Andrew at Immediate Records. And that was a fantastic period. And he had such wonderful artists, particularly that come to mind, the Small Faces, who were a wonderful band, uh, and P.P. Arnold, uh, an American singer who was with Ike and Tina Turner and Mick um, on a Stones tour, on the Stones 67 tour. And Mick persuaded her to leave uh, Tina and, and, and become a solo artist uh, on immediate records. That was an important, exciting and creative pay period. And then in the 70s, I think Susie Quattro, who I believe has been one of your guests. Yes, yes, fabulous. Great Susie, the queen of rock and roll. She, she was a force to be reckoned with and a wonderful subject. And I did, I did try and count them up. I think I did 23 sessions with her wow. uh, and most album covers. And certainly the launch picture in the black uh, leather jumpsuit. And, you know, she was wonderful. And that heralded a whole very exciting period in the mid 70s when I was working with her, but also with Mickey Most, her producer, uh, on all his rack record stuff. And Chinny Chap, Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman, uh, who had a series of huge hits. And I did all their photography as well. And, and so the 70s was an ex a very exciting, very creative period, uh, uh, a very high energy period, and uh, very challenging as well. I can go on, I don't know whether you want me to. Sure, go on, come on, let's hear it all. Well, and the, and the 70s ended for me, I don't mean that, I, it didn't end for me, but one of the major artists was Kate Bush, who of course has just had a huge revival through that television show. Um, and uh, everybody's listening to her again and thinking about her again. But I did the launch pictures of Kate Bush and I did the American cover for her first album. And then I did Lionheart, her second album as well. And I did about four or five sessions with her in her first year. And basically all the pictures that were used by the record companies to promote her were, were mine. And that was a huge step, another huge leap uh, for me. And then came Eurythmics, I think, are the next big stepping stone for me. Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart, who've just within the last few weeks been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was a, a huge event. And my one of my portraits of them was used as one of the massive backgrounds um, to their performance. So you know, it, it, and it goes on, <laughs> but I think that's sort of, that's reasonably a good potted history for three decades anyway. It's, it's like listening to the history of rock and roll to speak with you, which is so wonderful. I want to thank you for being on this podcast. Really, you're one of the great photographers of the rock era. You, you had so much success with so many of these artists as they were coming up. And you've documented the entire journey with them. So really kudos to you and just wonderful to hear all these stories. Oh, thank you, Robert. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to share them with you and your listeners and to be 200 countries. Gosh. There you go. We're going to get you around the world. This is your world tour. Fabulous. Thank you. All right. We're going to listen now to the song that started off this episode. It's my version 
my reimagined version of a Jimi Hendrix classic called Fire. It was recorded live in Serbia, and it was on our album, uh, Greetings from Serbia. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
Can I take a selfie with you guys? Is that okay? Is that okay? All right, one. You guys are so pretty.